Mac Power Users, episode 349, MPU Plus for November 7, 2016. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie Floyd? I'm well, David. How are you? Good, good. Uh, it's time for another version of Mac Power Users Plus, sometimes called Mac Power Users Live. Uh, we've had a busy month and we got a ton of great feedback this month. So we've kind of got a cornucopia of nerdiness for our listeners today. All sorts of interesting topics. Uh, I guess we should just get started, right? A cornucopia? Yes. I've always heard it cornucopia. Cornucopia. Uh, I don't think so, David. Cornucopia. Mm, there's, there's no <laughs> U in cornucopia. Okay. Well, there you have it. Okay. We've got a lot of feedback this month. Let's get started, Katie Floyd. <laughs> All right. Um, we've uh, been talking and singing the praises of the Eero. Uh, they've uh, sometimes sponsored to our show. You and I both have Eros in our house. And after having good success with it, I actually put an Eero in my parents' home. And Gordon had a question about Eero. He said, I use an Eero. He says, I currently use a time capsule for a router and a backup. And I have looked at Eero, but I have not found any indication if I could purchase an external hard disk drive and plug that drive into the Eero and continue using our current time machine backup procedure. And David, I know you have some direct experience with this. The short version is that although the Eero does have a USB port in the back, currently you cannot use that to plug anything into. I, I, I think when we were on the phone with the Eero guys, they said that some of them like plug in iPhones to charge, but that is really like a diagnostic port. You can't plug in a hard drive and do time machine backups or anything like that. Um, but David, you do use your Eero and Time Machine, so you want to talk us through how you do that? Yeah, they. Um, you can turn your existing time capsule. The good news is, Gordon, you don't need to buy anything new, and you can do this. Um, you can turn off the radio in your time capsule and just turn it into, I guess, what I call a dumb time capsule and connect it um, via Ethernet to your network, whether you have a, um, a hub or it plugs into the back of one of your Eero's. There's instructions for this on the Eero website. I'm going to, I've already added them to the show notes, so they'll be there. But basically, you just turn off the radio and say, okay, time capsule, you are no longer a router. Now you are just a time capsule. And uh, the Eero works with that fine. And uh, we have uh, remote backups working through the the time capsule, which is no longer acting as a router uh, right now. So it's it'll work. Okay. Um, so the key to that, though, is that if you don't have a time capsule yet, you would need to either add, and, and you want to use Eero, you would either need to add a time capsule or an Apple device that could accommodate backup or one of these third-party devices that can accommodate time capsule, but the Eero itself does not do that. Yeah, and I, I don't know, um, I don't have direct experience with this, but there's a ton of new products coming out. Like I know H, um, uh, HP has one, uh, th these hard drives that are kind of networked, almost like, a very basic level network attached storage and you can plug them in. And I believe a lot of those can be configured to, to work with time capsule. So I think there's probably more options out there if you dig a little bit, but if you've got an existing one, you're good. Yeah. I've been wanting to look at some of those third party uh, kind of smart hard drives for lack of a better word. And um, maybe I'll have an opportunity to do so and, and can report back. They've been on my radar for a while because um, you know, I've got a time machine going on my Drobo here and that's great. It works wonderful. But that's kind of an expensive solution if all you really want is a time capsule-like device. I think we should give you a new title. I think Katie should be like the um, 
grand poobah of storage and backup. <laughs> I try. I definitely try. Uh, Bruno uh, and a couple of other people actually wrote in with the same question. In fact, I don't know if this happened recently with a new software update, um, but a few people said that they've recently set up family sharing and Bruno in particularly added his seven-year-old's iPhone to the family and she has her own Apple ID. And when Bruno logs into iCloud using her Apple ID under find my iPhone, he can see, so basically he's logging in as her he can see all of the Apple devices in the family. And when selecting his own family, his own iPhone, he can see things like play sound, which works, lost mode, which works, and a rather scary little button that says erase iPhone. And he admits that he did not try this third option because he was terrified of it, but worried that theoretically, that does this child have the ability to delete his iPhone or his Mac or any other device tied to Apple ID? Because David, you probably know sometimes your kids can get mad at you. And uh, if this happens because you ground them or send them to their room or do all other kinds of things, can they wipe your Apple devices? I don't know why people think these kids are so evil, though. Oh, I totally <laughs> would do this. I'd be like, really? I'm turning off the Internet for you people. If Katie's grounded, nobody's accessing the Internet. That would be, for me, that would be the end of your uh, your ownership of an iPhone, young lady. <laughs> that would be it. I'll be like, fine, take my iPhone, I take your internet. But the uh, either way, uh, the good news is you just don't push a single button and it erases the phone. Actually, you have to type in the user's iCloud password. So I guess if you gave the seven-year-old your iCloud password, she could uh, nuke your device remotely, but hopefully you're not doing that. Uh, and if you have, it's, it might be time to update your passwords. Yeah, not a bad idea. Clocks just changed, Katie. Yes, the clocks did just change. It's time to update all of your mission-critical passwords. Um, we're going to put a link to an article that the Mac Observer, they actually did dive into this and push the button to see what would happen. But the short version is, I think it's a good feature to have there because theoretically, David, if you lost your computer and you were out with your kid and you wanted to be able to wipe that, it's a nice thing to be able to do. Um, but just don't let them know your iCloud password. Well, I think the implementation is correct. I mean, I think that's what you would want the ability. If, if they're in the circle of trust, you'd want the ability to at least start down that path. The good news is it's not a one-step path. There's multiple steps. You have to confirm it and you have to type in a password. So hopefully they won't be able to do that to you. And hopefully your kids are nicer than that, honestly. <laughs> Although my kids would go crazy if they heard about a seven-year-old getting an iPhone because I made them wait much longer. But I think that's also a sign of the times. Yeah. You know, I was really lucky when I was a kid. Um, I mean, I, I, don't rem I don't remember really ever getting grounded. I'm sure I got in trouble for plenty of things, but I did not have all these devices to be taken away from me. I, I'm I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I definitely got sent to my room for various things, but um, man, that, that taking that iPhone away is a is a big power. Yeah, I'm gonna sound like the old guy for a minute, but when I was a kid, on the summer, I would just head out on my Schwinn ten speed, and I had to be home when it was dark. There was no way to track me. <laughs> it, it was a different world. Um, but uh, so, Katie, just a serious question though: um, if you were um, younger. Wouldn't it be more likely that you would be grounding your parents than them grounding you? Probably. Yes. I just had a feeling that like you had a clipboard when you were like four. Yeah. No. Did you? No, no computer for you. <laughs> I thought so. I'm not, I'm not fixing it for you this time. Andrew wrote in, Andrew said, Hey, it, is it ever a good idea to nuke and pave an iPad? He has an iPad four 
the original Retina iPad, and it's rather sluggish these days. Um, and uh, complicating this question is the fact that I haven't yet pulled the trigger on the iOS 10 update. He says he always waits until the new release comes out. So if you do a factory reset, can I keep iOS 9 or will I need to put iOS 10 on it? Um, okay. First, let's just talk about, there's some follow-up questions, but first let's just talk about whether or not it's ever a good idea to nuke an iPad. Do you have an opinion on this? I, I think it depends. I, I think it's easier with an iPad than it is with an iPhone. I nuked and paved my iPhone for troubleshooting purposes a while ago, and it was just a pain for weeks. But, I mean, sometimes that's the path that you have to go down for troubleshooting purposes. I, I guess it depends on what what is the issue. You, you say that it's rather sluggish. Is that just general slowness? I mean, I I don't know that it's going to hurt anything, but I think you have to be strategic about how you do it and you have to be willing to accept that there's going to be some some pain and the last couple of times I've done it I've ultimately ended up reverting to a backup because it's been such a pain. I am um, you know Andrew's iPad is is one of the weird iPads. The iPad 4, the original Retina iPad. See, I, the iPad 3 was the original Retina iPad because I had that and that was so it depends is it the iPad 3 or is it the the fourth generation iPad because the iPad 3 was that weird in between iPad. It was the iPad it was the iPad that was out for only about 6 or 7 months before it got an update because it was Retina but it was really underpowered to be Retina. Yes, it got hot and um it just that was I think the worst iPad frankly. It was. Um so if if it's an iPad 4 then it's Lightning. That was the first one with Lightning. If it's if it if it has a 30 pin dot connector then it's the iPad 3 and I believe that is the original Retina iPad. And if that one is slow and pokey, it's because it's an iPad 3. And those are slow and pokey when they were new. And I think they'd only be worse now with software, you know, getting updated. I don't even know that that one is supported for iOS 10. So I guess that's a, that's a research point. So let's assume that he's got an iPad 4, uh, which is much faster than the iPad 3 and probably still got a little gas left in the tank. Uh, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to go ahead and nuke and pave it. I have done it on occasion with some older devices, you know, in my family, if they don't go to Gazelle, they, they get handed down. And occasionally we do have iOS devices that seem to slow down. Maybe this is just, um, you know, uh, psychological, right? And maybe I'm just, you know, convincing myself, but it does seem like once in a while with some of these older devices, just, you know, knocking them down to zero and rebuilding them isn't a bad idea. So, uh, I wouldn't be against it. What about his problem with iOS 10 versus iOS 9? What's your advice on that? I think if the iPad supports iOS 10, when you do a nuke and pave, you're probably going to be automatically updated to iOS 10 because Apple has stopped signing iOS 9. And um, so I don't think you're going to be able to update your your iPad without um, going to 10 because I think when you automatically go, well, I think if you have it, you may be able to keep it, but I, I don't think you're going to be able to update if your iPad supports it without going to iOS 10. I, I don't know that I, I didn't find that iOS 10 really, I don't think it's going to be that much overhead. I don't think there were that many changes that you're going to see that much difference between going to iOS 10 and iOS 9. The the issue, if you're, if you're finding slowness and pokiness on iOS 9, I don't know that going to iOS 10 is necessarily going to be that big of a difference. But if you're thinking about doing the nuke and pave, in my opinion, I would, I would go ahead and update it to iOS 10 and then back it up 
and then do the the wipe. I would not wipe it at iOS 9 because once you go to, I just think you're better off to go with the current operating system, assuming the hardware supports it. So I would go ahead and do the update and maybe even just run the update for a couple of days. Maybe you'll find that, for, you know, maybe there's some unique issue about this hardware that gets better with iOS 10. It wouldn't be the first time. But if it doesn't and you still want to do it, uh, make sure you have a good backup, plug it into your Mac and just do a, a wired backup. It's not a bad idea to have that. I understand you're doing a new compare and you're not going to go back to that, but just do it anyway, just to make me happy. And then do the full erase and start rebuilding it. I, I think it's also a good chance uh, with these older devices to not load everything on it. If you've had it since it was new and it's an iPad 4, you've got a bunch of apps on there you don't need anymore anyway. And I understand that doesn't really change performance that much, but it does open up more space and maybe that will help. And the new, the other thing about the new can pay is, is it also gives you an opportunity to rethink all of your settings. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. And it can be a bad thing because you lose all of your settings and everything that you've customized. But it also can be an opportunity to rethink, uh, have you made the best choices necessarily? Were there things that you would do differently? And maybe it's something in the way you've got it configured is what's slowing you down. Maybe you've got too many apps background refreshing in the background of an iPad that's maybe a little too old to handle that type of thing. Maybe you need to switch to a different format. I don't know. I will tell you, though, that I am still having issues with iOS 10 on both of my devices. And these are brand new devices. This is an iPad Pro and, a, and an iPhone 7. I still think that there's something funky in iOS 10 and background updates. Because I will look at my email at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, and it will say, last updated yesterday. I really haven't noticed that. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. Yeah, I think there's something wrong with iOS 10 and background updates. And, and Andrew, I don't think uh, this idea of nuking and paving, well, it it doesn't necessarily make sense that it would improve things. It, it can. Um, and I don't think it's really the end of the world to do it. That's one of the reasons why, frankly, I kind of like right now the idea of using the iMac plus the iPad with no laptop. It's one less Mac to maintain. Maintaining an iPad is, is really not that difficult. And even just doing a full nuke and pave is not going to take a day out of your life like it could with a Mac. So maybe just give it a shot. But do do update to iOS 10 first. It's, it's going to be all the little things that you find, you know, later that are going to bother you. I mean, the first day you're going to find all the passwords that have to be reentered and all the settings that have to be tweaked. Um, on your primary apps, but it's really going to be days two, three, and four that you're realizing, oh, why isn't this working out oh, because of a specific setting? Just as a side note, kind of related, we, we are planning a show right now that's going to come out in about a month about using an iPad as a, as, a, as a laptop machine, as a laptop replacement. I'm not saying as a Mac replacement. It's more like someone like me who has an iMac plus an iPad as opposed to an iMac or a MacBook. If you have uh, opinions, thoughts, ideas, suggestions on that topic, please send them in because we are deep in planning on that one right now. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They have created one perfect mattress that they sell directly to consumers, eliminating the cost-driven inflated prices that you get when you go to normal mattress stores. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, and they are passing that savings directly onto the consumer. It's award-winning mattress developed in-house and has a sleek design, and best of all, it is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets, and I cannot wait to get to try these. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for several months now. I love it. In fact, several of my family members have now bought Casper mattresses 
not just because they're comfortable, but because they are so convenient. So the in-house team at Casper, their engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. And what a great job that has to be, being able to sleep on mattresses for a living. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam to create a mattress that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, it's a breathable design that helps you regulate your temperature throughout the night. And best of all, Casper is not as expensive as you would think. Regular mattresses can cost well over $1,500. I know my last mattress that I bought maybe over 10 years ago cost significantly more than the Casper that replaced it. But Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full, $650 for a queen, and $950 for a king. And they are all made in America. Best of all, buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns in the U.S. and Canada with a 100-night free trial. That's right. You get to sleep on it for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they will pick it up from your house and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering that you're going to spend probably a third of your life on it. And best of all, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com MPU and using the coupon code MPU. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you so much to Casper for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Hey, we had a lot of feedback on our Cloud War show. Yes, people, people have opinions about the cloud. Yeah, they do. That was, a, that was a fun show to plan for and give. I'm glad a lot of people got a lot out of it. Uh, why don't we start with Chris? So Chris and many, many other people, both via email and Twitter, um, mentioned a flub that I made on the show. And I mentioned that when we're talking about Dropbox, that I implied rather that there is only a $2 a month pricing difference between the business and premium model. And I mentioned that right now I'm only on the premium model of Dropbox for which I pay $99 a year. But um, when as soon as I add an employee, I'm going to switch over to the business model because it makes more sense. And what all of the internet wrote back to tell me is that the business model for Dropbox is requires at least a minimum of five users to use. So while it is only a couple of dollars more, you have to have at least five users. So if you really only have two users, then you're paying for three users that you don't need. I regret the error. Yeah. And the mea culpa kind of falls on me too. I did most of the work on that outline. And, and I, for some, I was thinking that Katie was using Dropbox Pro. So I, I left the research part of that and I didn't realize till we got started recording that Katie wasn't using that. You were considering it, but you weren't using it. So. Well, I'm using the pro version of Dropbox. I'm not using the business version of Dropbox. If I had done the research, it would have been the outline. Sorry guys. But anyway, if you want to do the business version, you're going to have to have multiple people. Icaro wrote in with a solution to a problem that you have, David. Yes. And you you were talking about um, we were lamenting the fact that Selective Sync is really selective on Dropbox, and there's there's this supposed new sync that has been teased that will allow you to have folders on your computer that you can upload to and then only download when you need them. But it, what, do they have a name for that yet? But I think it's called Infinity. In Dra- Dropbox Infinity. Yes. But it doesn't exist yet. It's only this theoretical thing that may or may not come out at some point. And and in the meantime, you're doing this weird dance to get all of your movies and video content up to Dropbox so you can use your full terabyte of space because you don't have a computer where you can utilize the full terabyte of stuff that you have on Dropbox because you have SSDs in all your machines and you don't have enough space. 
Yeah, so just to get the summarize what the procedure was, I would load maybe three or four movies onto my iMac and wait until Dropbox had synced them up, and then I would go into Selective Sync and unsync them. And I had to put each one into an individual folder because Dropbox doesn't allow you to do Selective Sync for files and only allows you to do it for folders at this point. Goofy. That sounds like a royal pain. Yeah, it is. He did. He said, I was listening to your last MPU episode, and David talked about his whole wacky workflow. And he says, while that can definitely work, there's an alternative that I've been using for a while, and it's an app called Commander One Pro. That is just just a clever title in and of itself. It sounds like it's a... I think it just touches your Star Trek buttons. Just A fighter, like a, I'm envisioning you like in the cockpit of a fighter, you know, pew, pew, stuff. Uh, the app basically works as a separate Dropbox client that can access your entire account. What I really like about it is that I can upload and download files from Dropbox like I would with an FTP client. I often use it to upload a large DMG and audio file straight into a backup folder in my account that is not synced to my Mac. The app also works with other cloud services like Google Drive and Amazon S3. And you can even transfer files between those services, which is really a useful feature. The app is a bit expensive at $29.95. I love that we think that that's an expensive app now. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> However, I think it's worth it for people who might want a little more control over their cloud services. Um, and as Ikaro was talking about this, I also realized that I had a tool on my computer that does this. Uh, I think I got it as part of one of those Mac bundles, and it's called Expand Drive. So you can either use uh, Commander One Pro or Expand Drive, and we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Yeah, but we really need a Dropbox to fix it natively. So hopefully that happens soon, and this this Dropbox Infinity thing goes from theoretical to actual. You know, interestingly, you know, Apple is ahead of them on this. They well, sort of ahead of them. They have this idea with with Sierra that you can push a button and the the Mac will kind of figure out iCloud storage for you. And if you're running out of space, it'll save things to the cloud. Um, I had talked about during that cloud show how I had turned it on to see how things would work um, uh, as the official canary, whereas Katie is the official um, a grand poobah backup. I am the canary in the coal mine of Mac power users. I always seem to push the buttons that you're never supposed to push. Um, and I paid with this one. <laughs> some would call that foolish. I had some trouble with my iCloud storage. So it, it's a one button, you know, save to iCloud thing. It, there's not a lot of manual control, which is something that Dropbox promises once they ever release Dropbox Infinity. And I had a weird, a couple weird things happen. The first was suddenly my Ulysses file stopped syncing, which was a big deal because I keep a ton of working stuff in Ulysses. And it just wasn't syncing. You know, I was doing stuff on, on the Mac and on the iPad and I wasn't seeing it in both places. And I started to flip out a little bit. And it turns out the problem was iCloud was saving the file up to iCloud and not keeping it locally. And that was causing Ulysses to have trouble keep track of what was what. So I had to turn that off. Uh, another thing I lost was my uh, Dragon Dictate. I guess it's called Dragon Professional now. My Dragon Professional voice file. It's a large file and I use it almost every day. But one day I logged in and it said, you don't have a voice file anymore. And it had been uploaded to iCloud. So I had to sort that out. So uh, I'm not, I don't think this is entirely ready for prime time yet, as, as we all kind of expected from the beginning. I'd really like to see Apple get some more manual controls over this to make it more practical for users. Uh, because the problems I had were not uh, edge case problems. Their problems is using apps and getting it to keep the files that I want it to keep. 
I mean, even just a little flag that says never upload this, you know, never take this off my hard drive would be really nice. Uh, I have some more uh, drama with iCloud. I'm going to save that for another comment. It applies later in the show. What about Brian? So Brian walked in to talk, (laughs) Brian wrote in uh, to talk about Evernote as a compliment to Dropbox. He said, I just listened to your Dropbox versus iCloud show, and I came away with the impression that you've largely migrated to Dropbox now that you're running your own law practice. I guess he's talking to me. Uh, After largely abandoning Evernote for a mishmash of Dropbox, DevOnThink, iCloud, and Omnipresence, I'm back to viewing a revised approach to Evernote as a nice complement to Dropbox for organizing permanent archive-worthy files. Evernote is perfect for keep for 90 days type things or other random snippets such as web clippings, recipes, and various stray bits of text I don't want to lose. As for DevonThink, I mainly use it to solve very specific problems, universally searching 27 years of back issues of my magazines that are archived individually as PDFs. I am still struggling to figure out exactly where Evernote fits into my system other than just kind of a dump every miscellaneous thing into here category. I really think we need to have Gabe back on to talk about DevonThink, especially now that they've gotten a revised iOS client going, because I think I could move a lot of my stuff there. I hadn't told you, Katie. He's already agreed. It's in the works. Good, good. Yeah. We have a lot of stuff in the works that I don't seem to know about. Um, but I, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm a busy guy. I'm glad. I'm glad you're working <laughs> behind the scenes now. Make sure you've got it on our uh, on our show list. Um, I, I can we do it before December because that's when my Evernote renews. Okay, we'll we'll move things around in, in, before before the end of the year. We'll we'll hopefully get that done. We got we got, we got to accommodate Katie's Evernote schedule. Well, you know, because we were it's it's on my subscription list. Actually, I re- I realized since we recorded that subscription show, how many things are not on my subscription list. So I've I've added probably about a half a dozen things since since that show. Well, you can update us someday. Yes, I will be updating it. I, I definitely think there's a place for Evernote in my life, but I just I don't know that it's going to be the be all end all long term permanent storage because I I do want a place that I can put you know I have tons of PDFs from like continuing education seminars and things like that that have great you know sample documents and clauses that I I want to keep because I want to be able to pull upon those. But it sounds like Devon think may be made for that. And I, Evernote kind of works, but I just, every time I, it, it, it feels like it's getting too bogged down now with all that stuff. Yeah. It's just, I, I've made some changes in my workflow along those ideas of form text versus notes versus PDFs. Um, as always, I've, I'm a big believer in just a Dropbox nested folders for document storage. It, it's great because you know, when everybody's talking about how do I get out of Evernote if things go badly, I don't have that problem. I just got a folder I can move to any place I want. Um, the uh, but uh, for notes, I've I've told everybody already that I've I've switched over to the Apple Notes app, and that experiment is still running well. I'm still happy with it. But something I've changed up. So the canary croaks. Well, it's working. It's it's working, and one of the reasons is it's I feel like even better about it is I used to have when I was using NVAlt all these little text snippets, you know, lawyers are the worst plagiarists in the world. And we, when we find contract clauses and things we like, we always make a copy of them so we can kind of use them and bastardize them later when we're making something else. Uh, So I had all these little text files, you know, a one paragraph arbitration clause I like, or something silly like that. Um, And as I was getting better and uh, finding more uses for Ulysses, one of the things I realized is it's really great for that kind of stuff. Because 
it can be organized hierarchically in their folder system. They don't call it a folder system, but it is a folder system. And it's very easy to find what I need. It syncs across to all my devices when iCloud allows it to. And um, it's more organized. Uh, it is searchable. So I, I took about 600 notes out of my notes database or something like that, and which were all these little text snippets and moved them over to Ulysses. So notes is more efficient than ever. And Ulysses, is I'm really happy with it as kind of a form uh, text holder. So it's all good. Until it stops syncing. Until it stops syncing, then I got a problem. <laughs> uh, but Devin Think, I think there's still a place in my heart for Devin Think. One of the reasons I was putting off recording the show with Gabe is actually I want to download it and, and spend some time using it, and I haven't yet. But I'm going to uh, make that a priority, and we'll get that show done soon. Let us know what you think about Devin Think as we prep that show, if there's something you want us to cover. Thomas says that he feels that your struggle with the iCloud folder and folder management is really a fundamental conflict that, that Apple has with that and, and that Apple doesn't want there to be a file system. He wants the, the Apple wants the file system to be invisible and they don't want the user to think in terms of file systems. So that's why there really is no folder structure in, in iCloud per se. And so the way that Thomas gets around this is he has a very, or why navigating folder structures is so difficult. He says he has a very simple folder structure which he's running, he's been running successfully now for many years, and it's kind of based on the GTD folder system. Um, it's effective and robust, and once you've internalized it, it's easy to use even for teams. So his folder structure, it looks like, is about one, two, three, four, five, six folders. Um, it's inbox, which would be like downloads on a Mac. It's action files, tickler files, reference files, someday maybe files, and archive files. That, you know, Thomas may be right. That may be Apple's theory, but it, it does not work for me. It, there's just no way it could. Um, the uh, I have something like 120 clients and each one of those has multiple folders inside of it. I have to keep these things, you know, segregated. If I just took all of that stuff and just stuck it into one action file or tickler or reference folder, it would be completely insane for me. Um, and, and honestly, if that is Apple's theory, they're wrong. Because that that is a theory that works for a certain segment of people that can have, you know, a few number of files and easily fit into the system. But if they're going to tell me that I have to do it that way, then I will never be able to use iCloud because that's just never going to work for me. So I hope he's wrong. <laughs> but the, uh, it feels like you might be right. I, I don't know. I mean, they, they have an app for iCloud that allows you to have all those folders and to drill. I mean, there, there's a bunch of stuff that works right, a bunch of stuff that feels to me very Dropboxy in implementation. And then there's these little things. And I, I ranted on, us, on that show, so I'm not going to go over it again. But we've had updates. Uh, in fact, I have one device on the beta. It's still not fixed. You know, the save to iCloud dialogue is still just a hot mess and does not allow you to easily, you know, put thing in a specific place. So uh, the long, you know, period of waiting continues. Which brings us to our question from Harry. Harry says he enjoyed the show on Dropbox and iCloud and is now considering putting everything in iCloud. Good luck with that, Harry. Um, and when it comes to organization systems, he wants to know, how did you set up your organization system in iCloud? Did you buy into the iCloud folder setup that is saving files into application folders? Or did you organize your files in a similar hierarchical way as you would in Dropbox or anywhere else? Or both? He said, personally, he just likes opening an app and quickly finding a recent document, but he's worried that it's down the road that's going to get a little messy. Yeah. Uh, so. 
uh, to, to answer your question, Harry, I did it both ways. Uh, traditionally, I kept the folders in the specific app folders, like, for instance, Pages by uh, default has a folder in iCloud storage. And you can put subfolders in there if you like. So you could have a folder for correspondence and a folder for, you know, I don't know, what handouts or whatever, you know, different things in your life you're working on. As an example, I currently have some folders in there for my next um, field guide. And I, because I'm at the point with some of the text where it's in pages files and I'm sharing it back and forth with my editor and we're doing red lines. So that stuff is on iCloud. When I was doing the big boy experiment, thinking I might move to it permanently, I brought over the, all of the nested folders. And it was a massive amount of folders and files that were on there in addition to those folders. And in that case, I was treating those native folder, those native app applications, almost like a holding spot in some way. Like if I was working on something that I was just kind of jumping back and forth between the Mac and, and the iPad on, maybe I would have it in that pages folder, but ultimately they would get put in the right place in the nested folders and the iCloud storage. So I was using both of them, one of them more as a permanent solution and one of them more as a temporary solution. And to follow up on that, this is the second uh, iCloud problem I've had since we recorded that show. Um, and I think this, this kind of roots back to me turning off the store my stuff in iCloud when it doesn't fit. Uh, the problem was uh, some of those folders stopped syncing. My pages folder in particular, I just noticed last night because I've been working on a big project for a client and I had it in that temporary pages folder. It's one of my clients that is a Mac user. So that's fun. You can make stuff in pages. But I got back to my iMac and it wasn't there. And that, you know, I got, well, what's going on? I mean, the file sitting in the pages folder on my big iPad, it's not on my Mac. Um, so I opened up the iCloud.com uh folder a uh, file in, in safari you know so th there is an icloud storage uh, web interface at icloud.com and i could because i wanted to see which one was right was the mac right or was the ipad right so you could know where your files were and it turns out the ipad was right so the stuff that showed in icloud on the ipad was actually in icloud so then i knew that the problem wasn't the files um getting from the ipad to icloud but the problem was the files getting from icloud back down to imac and after some Google searching and digging around, I found out that if you go into the library folder, application support and nuke the cloud sync stuff, and then go in and kill some processes and restart the computer, that it'll get it working. And that's not super difficult. I, I put a, a um, link to this in the show notes because I don't know, somebody out there may, listening may have, have the same problem, sadly. Uh, and so it took me five minutes once I figured out the solution to kind of fix it. And now everything is syncing again and I'm happy. But the point is, this has never happened to me with Dropbox. You know, I've never had to go into the library folder and nuke a file. And I've never had to deal with processes. And when I save something in Dropbox on my, on my iPad, it always just shows up on the Mac and I just never have a problem. So, you know, I said at the end of that show how badly I really did want to kind of just go all in with iCloud. And ultimately, I decided not to. I feel like I've been kind of reassured in that decision in the month since because it still seems like there's still some bits falling off here and there and the wheels are still a little bit wobbly with this. I think Apple really wants this to work and I hope that they've got a bunch of resources dedicated to it. But um, my answer, Harry, would be maybe not to go all in just yet unless you've got small enough needs that those types of problems you don't think you'll experience. That did not seem like a ringing endorsement. 
No, it's not. It's just the opposite. I mean, it's a disappointment. I feel like I think iCloud could be better. And the fact that, you know, I didn't have stuff automatically syncing from my iPad to my Mac is a problem because the operating systems and the hardware are made by the same people. So, you know, there's only one person that that blame falls on. So how's that going on? And, and I was looking, none of these were on beta. I mean, this was all just standard, you know, milk toast, you know, everything is, is being shipped right now and some things weren't working. And all I did was turn on the feature that they say I should use and then turn it off. I think that was the beginning of these problems when I turned it off. Uh, but, you know, it shouldn't be that hard. So hopefully uh, they fix it at some point. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Omni Group and their outstanding task management application, OmniFocus. The world moves pretty fast these days, and there's probably not a single person listening that doesn't have multiple areas of commitment in their life. Maybe one day you'll be killing it at the day job, but disappointed in yourself as a dad. The thing you need well, really, the thing we all need is a way to prioritize and organize all of the areas in our life so we always know what's the most important thing we can be doing right now. That's where OmniFocus comes in. OmniFocus is my secret weapon for managing the various pieces of my life. It's not a time machine. It doesn't give me extra time so much as it gives me priorities and an understanding of where I should best spend my time. Without OmniFocus, there's no way I'd be able to get done half of the things I do in my life. Instead, I'd be walking around with that feeling in the pit of my stomach like I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to be doing or where I'm supposed to be right now. That's why I love OmniFocus, and that's why I love having them as a sponsor for the Mac Power users. OmniFocus brings context to your life. It allows you to keep work and play separated, but also gives you perspective so you can see everything in a variety of ways. Set the perspective that makes the most sense for you right now, and then you will know where you're supposed to be. OmniFocus also has a very sophisticated review system that allows you to keep on top of your projects and goals. With just a little bit of time in OmniFocus every morning, I get my day organized, and for the rest of the day, I'm a productivity machine. I love that. The team designing and building OmniFocus is some of the best in the business. They're top-notch programmers and user interface designers. This makes an application that's rock solid in terms of stability and also beautiful and easy to use. They've got versions of OmniFocus for the iPad, the iPhone, and the Mac. They've even got it on the Apple Watch, which is great. Now I can add tasks right from my wrist. If you just got a new iPhone 7, check out 3D Touch for the iPhone with OmniFocus. They've got support for peak, pop, swipe up, and quick actions. Of course, the Omni Group is on top of the latest features. If you'd like some help getting your act together, head over to theomnigroup.com and check out the OmniFocus website. They've got some great tutorials and videos there. There's even some materials from me. Don't wait any longer. Take control of your life with OmniFocus. Thank you, OmniGroup, for supporting the Mac Power users. So we also talked a bit about Sierra when Sierra came out. I have upgraded with mixed feelings about Sierra on my home machine, Things seem to be going rather well. I waited until the 10.1 update to update my work machine to Sierra, partially because of some of the scan snapping compatibilities, which seem to be mostly resolved, partially just because, you know, that's my work machine. I have been having issues with email ever since I upgraded to Sierra. Uh, I don't know what that's about. I don't know whether that's a plugin issue. 
I don't know whether that's just general Sierra wonkiness, but um, uh, Sierra and I are not friends right now at work. What's happening with email? So I have two things happening with email. Um, One thing that's, and I'm using the stock Apple Mail client, and I've got um, uh, Mail Tags, Mail Act On, and I did have um, a, a plugin called um it's a clive giovanni's anti-inline which i've now disabled because i thought that was causing some of my issues but the two big things that are really happening is that mail is not refreshing well and this is a machine that's a it's a little bit older mac mini but it's it's um fairly modern it's about three years old and it's got an ssd and it's got plenty of ram and it is not refreshing mail quickly so if i'm looking at the inbox a lot of times it will take several seconds to load up a message that's already been downloaded or switching between the inbox and sent items and those types of things. You know, several, sometimes minutes of delay in, in showing the messages. And I've tried vacuuming the mail database and rebuilding the mail database and all those types of things and um, no avail. I've done it multiple times. And it, it will, it after it gets going in the morning, it will seem to work for a while. And it seems like the next morning we're we're back to the same issues. It's interesting because you had two complaints today. One is about mail on Mac and the other one is about mail not updating frequently on iOS. I wonder if it's at the IMAP level. Uh, no, because it's with all of my accounts, not not any one account. And then the um, the other issue is that when I send attachments from my Mac only on that Mac to another user who's on a PC... They are, they see that there was an attachment. So they get, you know, the little paperclip icon, but it's a broken link. And then, so for example, I use, I use Gmail apps for work. So if I load and if I go into the Gmail web interface and look in my sent items, I too see the, that there was an attachment attached, but it's like a broken link. However, if I look in my sent items on my iPhone, which is clearly a different device, different place. The attachments show up just fine. People who have Macs seem to get my attachments just fine. Yes, the little box that says send Windows friendly attachments. Yeah, he beat me to it. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of emails would have come in on that one. I uh, Interesting. Have you Googled it or, or seen any other people experiencing that problem? I have Googled it. I've seen some general reports in the Apple, um, you know, support forums about wonkiness with mail and Sierra, but not these specific issues. So that's why I kind of can't help but wonder if it's like a plugin, if it's like a plugin that's causing these issues. And so therefore it's kind of a limited subset. I don't know. Maybe just kill all your plugins for a day and just to see what happens. But it, but it seems to be the issue only seems to be when I'm sending to non Apple people. And you said, you said your experience is on both your Mac mini and your laptop. No, I'm only experiencing on the Mac mini. Now, I I will tell you that could be coincidental. I probably need to do more testing on the laptop because I am much more likely to be sending an attachment to a Windows person from my work machine than I am on my laptop. So it could it it could be coincidental at this point. All right. Well, report back to us, Katie Floyd. But uh, but Fran wrote in about some Sierra feedback, too. And she talked about Hazel to replace document sync. Um uh, in a recent show in Sierra, we were talking about files getting backed up to iCloud with the new Mac OS and concerns with the feature. And this is a different thing than I was talking about earlier. This is where that they look at the contents of your documents folder in your desktop and they create a folder in your iCloud storage. It's really nice if you have multiple Macs and that way everything is in every place at all the time. 
And it's also kind of nice as kind of a poor man's backup system. Um, but Fran has a solution. She says, normally, like any good geek, I like to keep my desktop clear. But she solves this problem with Hazel. After uh, watching my Hazel field guide, she got into it. And one of the things she has is a folder that says anything that stay, or I'm sorry, a rule that with Hazel says anything that stays on her, her desktop more than a week gets moved to a folder called desktop files and Dropbox. And then that way she's got um, the file across all platforms. And then this is the clever part. She creates an alias back on the desktop for the file so she can see it. I thought that was smart. Uh, so now she can basically have that Sierra feature without having to enable it with Sierra and deal with any kind of iCloud wonkiness. Uh, good job, Fran. You get your uh, your nerd button this week. James had a question. We're getting a lot of questions from users about what do they do with these older Macs that will not run Sierra. It seems like, you know, after years of having the exact same system requirements across multiple upgrades, Apple has has put a lot of Mac users out in the cold with the Sierra upgrade. Um, I know I've got several Macs in my family that are not eligible for Sierra. What do you do? And James has written us an, uh, with another one. He says, I have a question about my wife's 2011 17-inch MacBook Pro running Maverick. So he's a couple of generations back. He said, my understanding is that Apple has stopped supporting it as of September, according to Wikipedia. Is it safe to keep her on Mavericks? Will she still get Safari updates from Apple or should she use Chrome or Firefox instead if she plans on continuing to use Mavericks? What does it mean that the OS is no longer supported? And then he's got other questions, but I want to address that one first and separately. I have looked when I got James' question because it has always been my general understanding that Apple can supported the current operating system, clearly, but they would support one operating system back in terms of regular patches and updates. And occasionally you would get, you know, if it was a very significant patch or update, you would occasionally see patches and updates that go further back than that, but you weren't necessarily guaranteed it. And so I was trying to find an article or something on Apple's website that that stated this was their policy. So something that I could, I could, if I could definitively tell James, well, no, Mavericks is not really supported anymore, but if you can at least get to, um, um, I want to say mountain lion, but that's not right. It's the um, uh, El Capitan, El Capitan. If you can get to El Capitan, then you'll at least be good until the next major update. And while I think that's my feeling, I have not found anything official to say that's true. So if anybody can point us to any official documentation or policy on what Apple's policy is for software updates and specifically security updates, I'd appreciate having that information. Um, David, do you know anything different than that? No, I mean, just from the all the years of looking at the press releases, they quite often will update the current operating system and then a security patch for the prior one. I don't have any recollection of them ever patching back two versions. So you really want to get to at least the last one if you can. But that's kind of hard because, um, you know, a 2011 17-inch MacBook Pro, I used to call that one the battleship. You know, remember that thing was huge. My mom still has one. Yeah, um, they're good they're good machines. And Apple doesn't make a 17-inch. And that was really a desktop replacement computer. And some people love those. And for whatever reason, Apple doesn't make them anymore. So I get why you want to hold on to them. And and frankly, Apple makes pretty good computers. I, there's no reason why a 2011 computer can't still be doing the job for you. Uh, so I don't really have a good answer for you. If you can, get up to the most recent that will accept security patches. 
Um, otherwise, would you stop using it? I don't think I would. I think I would continue using it, but I'd be careful about what I do with it. Yeah. And so his next point says, I can upgrade her to El Capitan because we know that Mavericks, that whole line, had the same operating system requirements. But I'm probably going to have to increase her RAM from 4 gigs to 8 gigs, likely. She's running a 256 gigabyte SSD, so that's good. Um, James, I don't know necessarily that you need to upgrade her RAM from 4 gigs to 8 gigs. I think that would certainly be nice. And I think you'll find, especially for this type of computer, if you go on Crucial.com or um, uh, or MaxSales.com, I think you're going to find that that's not going to be a very expensive upgrade. And it's really not a hard upgrade on that machine. Yeah, my guess would be under 50 bucks. Yeah, I would price it. And I think you're going to find that's not going to be very expensive. So I don't think that's a big deal, upgrading her from 4 to 8 gigs. Um, if it is, or it's more expensive than you think you want to spend on it, I think it's going to be okay. Upgrade. I don't think you're going to see if if she's running Mavericks on four gigs and is not having significant issues. I don't think you're going to suddenly see significant issues and slowdowns by upgrading her to El Capitan. I certainly think it would run better with eight gigs, but I don't think it's necessarily a deal breaker. So I'd say price it out. I think you're going to find it's probably cheaper than you think it's going to be. And then, um, and then try it. Though the problem is, is that the only thing, the reason it might be more, because, you know, RAM, of course, is expensive when it's brand new, and then it drops down in price, but then at some point it becomes almost obsolete, and then it becomes hard to find, so it gets expensive again. So I, I don't know what category you're going to be in there. At the end, he concludes, hey, uh, she doesn't really need a new machine because she loves the 17-inch side, and she wants to keep this machine running until it croaks. And this is where I need to step in as a husband and talk to James. So this is just a James. Okay. James. If she likes the computers, it's running. Take my word and don't change anything. Just leave it. You'll be okay. That's all I have to say to you, James. You get in so much trouble. I don't think she's going to see a difference from Mavericks to El Capitan. Well, there, there's a possibility that it'll get worse. You know, because I don't know how well they have tuned that operating system to run with a 2011 17-inch MacBook Pro. My mom is running El Capitan on hers, and it's fine. Okay, well, there, well, there's a data point. But I can tell you from experience that if you mess around with your wife's computer and suddenly it doesn't work as well as it used to, when you do an upgrade, it, it actually puts you in the doghouse. So be careful. Let, let me tell you what I get all kinds of grief on, because I keep that machine maintained and updated for her. I get all kinds of grief for moving her from iPhoto to Photos. Uh, really? Is it, is it why? Because I think Photos is better than iPhoto. All kinds of grief. It, it's just because she, your mom likes iPhoto, but this photo's not run well on that machine. It's different. It feels different. It looks different, and the editing tools aren't as nice. Okay, so it's different is is not good enough for me. If it was, it, it runs terribly on the machine because I I felt like iPhoto. Well, what was what just, did you just say like thirty seconds ago? If she's happy and she likes it, leave it alone. I know, but I'm just just I put my nerd hat back on because I that I don't accept your mother's complaint there. I get it. She doesn't like it, but then, then you come spend a week and teach her. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. But yeah, be be careful with this upgrade, James. I don't want you to, uh, you know, need a divorce attorney or something. <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, it, the the machine is getting older. And, and Apple, I don't envy them because they make hardware that lasts all this time, and they're trying to make software to move the ball forward. And they're really no good solution for them if they. Try to bring this six-year-old computer into the new operating system 
and it slows everything down, then they're going to say, you're trying to make me buy a new computer because you made my software worse and now I have to buy a new computer, right? If you don't bring it along because you feel like it's not going to run optimally on the new software, then they're saying, well, you're leaving me behind, so you're trying to make me buy a new computer. The fact is you can't win in your if you're in Apple's shoes with this problem. It's just like the um, selling the, the MacBook Air. You know, ever since we did that show on the new MacBooks, we, we got a bunch of email and I hear it on podcasts. Everybody's complaining, well, why are they keeping the MacBook Air around? It doesn't make sense, you know. They need to have a unified product theory, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, if they took it away, they can't afford to sell the new ones for a thousand bucks. Everybody's going to say, well, now you're just forcing me to spend more money. You're not giving me the option to buy the cheap one anymore. There's just no way for them to win when they get these little problems. I want to take a moment and talk about our next sponsor, and that is the good folks over at Agile Bits, makers of 1Password. So I have said it time and time again, if you do nothing else, the single most important thing that you can do to up your security on the internet and really in life in general is to use unique passwords across all of your related services on the internet. And that's tough. I get it. Having a unique password that you don't reuse across all of your devices. But password reuse is really dangerous. We've seen it time and time again. A couple of weeks ago, Yahoo announced that its entire database of users was breached. And you know what? It happened all the way back in 2014 and they didn't tell anybody till now. All of those passwords were compromised. You know what the hackers do with those compromised passwords? They take them and start using them on other services. So if you've had a Yahoo account for a long time and you use those passwords across other services, maybe back before you knew things about password reuse and how dangerous that was, you might have reused that password across other services, like maybe other email providers or maybe other banks or things like that. And you know what? Hackers now have that password. So how can you protect yourself? The single best way is to use a password management app. My personal favorite is 1Password. 1Password has a password generator tool that will allow you to create strong, unique passwords that you can then save in the 1Password application and using their many applications and tools, such as their browser extensions on both the Mac, iOS, all of the various browsers, and even on PCs too, will automatically fill in your passwords across the various websites. You don't have to remember these crazy, long, super ingenious passwords. All you have to do is remember your 1Password password. That unlocks your database, and that gives you access to all of the passwords stored inside. And if you think that you might have reused your passwords on various services, 1Password has a tool for that. They call it Watchtower, and it will go through and look at all the passwords that you've saved with 1Password. It will analyze them, tell you if a service has been compromised and you may need to change that password. And it will also tell you when you're getting a little lax and you've reused the password in a few sites, and maybe that's something that you want to take a look at changing. So when you're ready to up your password game, head over to onepassword.com slash MPU, and that's MPU in all caps. And they've got a great special and options for you, whether you're an individual user, whether you're using 1Password in a family, and they've even got a new team service. So you can keep make sure that your passwords are secure across all of your devices, across your family, and across your teams. So thanks to 1Password for their strong support of Mac Power users. So we heard from Dave about GTD and menu planning. Uh, you know, two things that are near and dear to me, GTD and food. He says, just about every time I hear a discussion about time cost of doing GTD, you know, daily processing and weekly review, he's reminded of menu planning for the family. He says each Friday or Saturday morning, uh, he spends about 20 to 30 minutes planning out the weekly meals for the family uh, through Paprika, which is an app we've talked about and we both love. You're still using Paprika, right? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, I'm not sure Katie is, but I like it. And he says the meals are coordinated around the type of evening expected, like sports night, family night, etc. The meal plan then drives the weekly grocery list. And after the work is done, I let my menu leave my mind as it's been planned out and stored in my calendar. Then each afternoon or evening, uh, he has to look at the calendar and make the dinner. It's low stress and pays dividends. He says, although I still fall off the GTD horse every now and then, this analogy pops into my head as a reminder to think about what needs to be done and later just follow the list and do it. I agree so much. I, I do get uh, emails from people complaining. Uh, somebody wrote me and said that, you know, a GTD system prohibits them from being creative because they have to spend so much time figuring out what they're going to do every day. And I would argue just the opposite. If you've got a good system, it allows you to free your mind. And I agree you need to spend 20 or 30 minutes a day between the morning and the evening kind of sorting things out. But isn't it great when you just have a list and you can just crank through it and you know it's the right list? I love it. Um, I'll just say, Dave, I believe. What about Guy? Uh, Guy wrote in to talk about two-factor authentication and continuity. And we've heard this from a few people in the past. Uh, he says, I switched to two-factor authentication with Sierra and have several iDevices. Apple and other companies, as part of their security, send messages or text messages to a second device when logging in. For example, when logging into a secure website, a code is sent to my phone. Yet with Apple's continuity, the code appears on all of my devices simultaneously. So this is basically um, when you have text message. I think what he's talking about primarily is text message forwarding. So if somebody sends you a text message to log into a secure service, that text message then appears on your Mac. It appears on your phone. It appears on your iPad. It appears on your Apple Watch and all of those things. And Guy says, doesn't this defeat the purpose of two-factor authentication? A malfeasor accessing a secured account with one device would have access to the code sent to another. Well, I, I just would make a clarification. It's not that with the new Apple, there's two sets of uh, uh, two-factor authentication with Apple. The most recent one stopped using text messaging because people were spoofing the SIM cards. So this works through the Apple messaging service. Now it's not text messaging. That's one of the benefits of the new system. Well, but that's that's for Apple's system. He's talking, oh, uh, let's talk about just generic text messages that are sent. No, I, I thought his, his, the way I read his emails, what he's saying is because of Apple, um, the new system with Apple, you get the notice on all your devices. Okay, well you do. But Apple can also use SMS as a fallback. You can elect to get that as an SMS message as well. Yeah, if you want. I took his email as, what about all those things that send me SMSs, and now all my SMSs go to multiple devices? Yeah, well, and, and I agree with you, but it's the mechanism is not the SMS. Generally, it's the Apple messaging system sending it. But I think that the root of his problem is, hey, doesn't that defeat the purpose? If they steal my device, they're going to get the authorization code to enter it because they have the device. Um, there's... I guess the, there's two things I would say to that. I'm sure you've got a, a couple of points to add as well. The first is uh, this two-factor authentication thing really isn't designed around when they have physical possession of your device. Because quite often when they have physical possession of your device, they already have your passwords. Um, the What it really gets around is a hacker somewhere else in the country or the world who's got your username and is trying to hack through to your system to get access to your photos or your your email or your or your whatever and this problem actually in that case is kind of a benefit because suddenly you get a notification on all your devices somebody has requested two-factor authentication and if you if it wasn't you then you know the red klaxons start going off yes and that's true but i i 
either you've misread your guy's email or I've misread guy's email, or let's take it to a different level. Okay. Re- regardless of, of whether the authentication code is coming in through through Apple, or let's just say it's coming in through a regular text message. Let's say like Backblaze, for example. Backblaze sends authentication codes through SMS. Yeah. And so when you get that SMS, if I'm trying to log into Backblaze on my computer at work, my SMS messages are forwarded not only to my phone, but to all of my computers that are logged into iMessage, which would include that that computer at work. Correct. So Guy's point is, if someone is trying to access access Backblaze on one of my devices, and that SMS message is now forwarded across all of my devices, haven't we just defeated the purpose of two-factor authentication? In that case, yes. <laughs> I guess. However, I think re- going back to David's point, I, I think there are a couple of things you have to, to look at. Number one, if that is something that is truly a concern to you, and if you only want your SMSs going to one particular device like your iPhone, you can turn off that SMS forwarding feature. That's easy to do. It's simply a setting. Um, the other thing is, David's right, if someone has physical access to your device, you're probably already screwed. So in, in Guy's case, your your proposed hacker has to has to have your Backblaze account. Let's assume it's Backblaze. We're going to pick on Backblaze for a minute. They have to have your Backblaze account password. They have to be logged into your computer, which presumably you have secured with a password of its own. Um, so they have to be sitting at your desk, logged into your computer or with one of your devices in hand, already have that device and already have your Backblaze password. I think you're probably in a lot of trouble already. Yeah. What's physical possession equals, you know, compromised security almost every time. I mean, the real problem that two-factor authentication solves is the Matt Honig issue. I mean, Matt was a writer for Wired Magazine. I don't know where he's at these days. A couple of years ago, he's sitting home playing with his daughter, and he starts getting all this notifications that all his iCloud photos are getting deleted, and basically someone's just playing hell with his life. And what they had done is hacked in. And by, I, I don't even want to say the word hacked. They had reverse engineered his password. They figured out his username and his password. So they logged in from an entirely different computer, not one of Matt's. And if he had two-factor authentication, which of course didn't exist at that time, um, he would have got a warning and they would have required a enter code that appears on only his devices before they could have done that. So he would have saw, he would have um, dodged that bullet. Um, the other thing is keep in mind, you can protect yourself against some of this. One, as we talked about, is don't let your your SMSs forward to your various devices. And the other one is to protect your SMSs. So for example, if you if you obviously on your phone have SMSs, don't let the preview show on your lock screen. So if your device is just sitting on your desk and you get an SMS, don't let the preview come through that says that shows the subject of the text message. Yeah, that could also help you uh, avoid getting fired. It can. <laughs> the, um, another way is use some of these authenticator apps instead of uh, text message authentication. And one uh, password does it. Authy does it. And not all services support it, but but a lot of them do. Where you can have like an authenticator app, which is different, and usually has its own password to get into, and is a little bit more secure. Right. All right. I think we've we've beat that horse to death. Yes. We talked about Zapier in a previous episode and lamented the fact that it seemed to be a superior service for many things to if this than that, but um, that neither of us had tried it because it, you know, had a cost associated with it. And, you know, we're we're not big fans of these subscription type services, Um, or at least there's a barrier to entry to get into the subscription services. And Tim rightfully wrote in to say a heads up. 
that it is possible to use Zapier for a very affordable price of $0 per month. They have a free forever account, and it's a great way to get started with the service to see if it's something that you like and then graduate into one of their paid tiers. He says, I'm a big fan of Zapier and continue to explore its potential. For example, I use Trello for idea and goal management and have a Zap that automatically adds items to my OmniFocus inbox via mail drop when I step into an action or an idea or goal. Conveniently, the OmniFocus action inherits the same name of the card and a link back to the Trello card that is stored in the notes field. And when this action lands in my inbox, I convert it to a project and then add one or more specific action items to move it forward. Clever. Clever. I think that was Tim Stringer who sent that in. It was, yes. Uh, Tim's been a guest on the show. Smart guy. Um, We are uh, still going to do some treatment of Zapier. And uh, If This Then That has got a big makeover since we talked about this last. So there is a future Mac Power Users episode that's going to get to the bottom of this stuff uh, soon. And also Microsoft just came out with a new product, a competitor to all this. So there's a lot of movement in these web-based kind of project management slash tasks you know, automation tools. So uh, plan on hearing about that one in the future. Neil wrote in about um, updates on Transporter. According to the, uh, he links a document, we'll go ahead and put it in the show notes. According to the document, Nexan will be terminating support for Transporter consumer grade products in September of 2017. So that's next year, about, you know, a little less than a year from now. And they won't be shutting down the central services. So Transporters will continue to operate at least for some period of time. Sadly, that means it's the end of development for the product. Um, this uh, transporter was a sponsor of our show for some time, and they got sold, and it seems like it's lingering. Uh, so people are asking us what we're doing about it. Um, I, I hate to say it, but I'm giving up on my transporter. I, I think it was a great idea. I still think it's a great idea controlling your own cloud, but I don't want to use um, cloud-based storage from a company that's no longer supporting software and presumably not no longer thinking a whole lot about security and and the things that you need somebody full-time taking care of. So uh, I'm sorry to report. And I'm, uh, I hope that if you bought one on our recommendation, you don't, you don't, you're not mad at us, but you know, we just, you don't know how the stuff's going to go down and uh, they're not going to support anymore. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I I think it was a great team behind it. And I, I clearly it was because they got bought out and, um, Unfortunately, the people who buy it out have have other plans for it. I think they've pretty much turned it into a commercial grade product now and just don't have a lot of interest in the consumer market. Yeah, I mean, we we talked a lot today about security. One of the great things about it was I always felt like I could just go and yank the plug down in my little media closet and nobody in the world could get access to that data. Stuff I'm putting on Dropbox isn't the same. But there you have it. Um, Guido wrote in about better touch tool to switch spaces. He says, Casey mentioned in show 346 is dislike for the Apple Magic Mouse but he depends on it because he wants to switch easily between spaces. Uh, He has a corded Logitech M150 mouse. Logitech makes some great mice. And it turns out that the combination of better touch tools, you can use this device also to switch easily between spaces. And uh, I meant to say something about that during the show. Do you do that, Katie? No, I, but I have, I have dedicated buttons on my mouse that allows me to switch between spaces. So I don't really feel like I need it. Yeah. Did you use better touch tool? I don't. Yeah. It, because I have all these buttons on my mouse. Yeah. But I mean, you can map those in better touch tool. So if you want to go a step further, I'll tell you, if you guys out there 
are your Mac power user, you're listening to the show, you really owe it to yourself to download this better touch tool. Now it is a paid app, so it does require some money, but I think he has a free trial period. And you can, you know, the name implies that it just works with a touchpad, but it doesn't. It works with everything. It works with the magic mouse. It works with other mice. It even works with that silly device people were selling where you can wave your hand around and it, it can interpret your hand gestures. Uh, whatever you, you're using to input to your Mac, uh, you can use better touch tool. Like I have mindset with my um, magic trackpad. If I do a force click on the lower right corner, it takes the existing window and just puts it on the right half of the screen. And the same thing for the left side of the screen with the lower left corner. Uh, you can get all these little gestures you put together where you can really just start smoking on your Mac. So, so check out Better Touch Tool if you haven't. And thanks, um, Guido, for writing in on that. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Head over to SaneBox.com MPU to save $10 on any plan. Email is really hard. If you don't believe me, listen to any of the email shows we've recorded over the history of Mac Power Users. One of the big problems is the technology really hasn't changed since email first started. SaneBox attempts to modernize email for you with a modern set of tools that allows you to better manage your email. Once you sign up for a SaneBox account, it takes a look at your email for you. Now, it's not reading the bodies of the messages. It's just reading the recipient names and the subject lines. But based on that information, it can do a really good job of organizing your email for you. Like it knows when you get an advertisement from the guy you bought a shirt from a few weeks ago, and SaneBox will move that into a folder that you don't need to read as often. On the flip side, if you get an email from your boss and SaneBox knows you always respond to those emails quickly, it'll put it right in your inbox so you see it there. With this email filtering, you can wake up in the morning and find 10 emails in your inbox instead of 200. And those 10 emails will be the most important emails that you need to respond to. This makes a huge difference. It allows you to be in control of your email instead of your email being in control of you. But that's not all you're going to get with your SaneBox account. They have snoozing so you can defer an email to the next business day or whenever you want into the future. They have Sane reminders so you can have SaneBox tell you when someone doesn't reply to an email after a set period of time. If you send a customer a new proposal, you can blind copy it to one week at SaneBox.com. If you don't get a reply in one week, SaneBox tells you. The last time I talked about SaneBox, I got an email from someone saying it sounds great, but they don't want to get another app. Well, that's another nice thing about SaneBox is there is no app. SaneBox is a web-based service, and it works with just about any email application and any type of email. There are a lot of great features, and I want you to go over to SaneBox.com MPU to check them out. A ridiculous number of Mac Power User subscribers have signed up for SaneBox subscriptions because they get it. This is the tool you need to manage email. Anyway, head over to SaneBox.com MPU, get $10 off any plan, and thanks SaneBox for supporting the Mac Power Users. All right, Katie, we had a lot of feedback on the new MacBook Pros. Uh, you're still happy you bought yours. You haven't got it yet, though, right? Um, I haven't got it yet. I will admit that this is a purchase that I've thought and rethought and a lot. Okay. Are you still, uh, are you still on the train or are you? It's still ordered. All right. Well, Ken, Ken wrote in about Apple pricing in other countries. This is a great show about, um, the new MacBook pros and greetings from the UK. Just wanted to add comments on the show regarding pricing on the new higher end MacBook pro. He was going to upgrade a 2013 MacBook pro 
but the total cost is now uh, 3,658 pounds, which equates to about $4,500 US, including Apple Care. Uh, his 2013 purchase was 1,200 pounds, which was about $1,500. So, no, no, he said com- compared to his 2013 purchase, this is an increase of 1,250 pounds or about $1,500. Oh, I'm sorry. I misread. Okay. Yeah. The similarly specced machine that he got in 2013, he's now spending, you know, 1,250 pounds or $1,500 more for. And part of that is the currency fluctuations. I know that uh, the pound has gone down and, and when Apple um, put the website back up, they increased the prices on all the MacBooks. Uh, Mike Hurley, our friend over at Relay, wanted to get himself the uh, the MacBook, you know, the plain 12-inch MacBook. And apparently it went up like 500 pounds or something from the morning to the afternoon when they repriced and re-put it up. He was able to get around it by going to a different vendor that sold Apple products and bought one at the older price. But um, But I feel for you. Uh, Ken wrote in, he says, while I can see that Apple's taking the opportunity to not only increase their retail prices, they've aimed to rebase prices based on the weak UK exchange rates. In reality, what they've done is alienate a lot of customers. I just can't justify. So I know I'm not alone. And I bet he isn't. I don't know what the answer to that is, though. I, I've heard a lot of people are unhappy about these prices. It's it's very expensive. I'm going to be spending by the time I'm done with the purchase of the computer, the purchase of the display, and the purchase of the dongles, um, you know, the computer is going to be about twenty five hundred. The display is going to be another thousand, and the dongles are going to be another couple of hundred. And then you add tax on that; it's it's going to be, you know, almost close to four thousand dollars for this purchase. Yeah, Apple has done a few things since we recorded that show. They've dropped the price of the of the five K monitor, I believe, by um, was it about three hundred dollars? They dropped it's it. about three hundred dollars now. Apple says that that is a limited time pricing, um, that it's available through the end of the year. I personally think that they'll keep that pricing around for a bit longer. Uh, same with the dongles. They've they've reduced the pricing on some of the dongles. I think they're getting a lot more backlash against this than they thought that they would. Notably, that display is not shipping until the end of the year. So question of if they truly do increase the prices back after the first of the year, how many people will be able to take advantage of that? Um, you know, maybe really only the people who truly order when it's initially available. But, you know, the other thing, David, is I'm just sitting here going, what is wrong with Apple and the supply chain? I mean, it's it's a three to four week wait and now more to order these new MacBooks. They can't get the displays out for months. Some of these dongles are are back ordered two to three months. They've totally missed the holiday season on the AirPods. We've had to wait years for new Macs. What is the problem? That's the question going around. I mean, I I think one of the answers is that Apple makes, you know, tanker. What do you call those big ships that carry all those cars in it? Um, Super tanker size ships full full of $100 bills on the iPhone. So they've become an iPhone company and they do spend a lot of time working on the iPhone. And I think the Mac doesn't get as much attention as it, as it deserves. Um, the fact that they were not unable to get desktop iMacs. And I don't want to go over old ground. We talked a lot about this on that show last month, but, um, and I do think I, uh, Intel is part of the problem. They don't have the chips for, for shipping the desktops, but. Well, and Apple, Apple gambled poorly. Apple's choose, chose to skip a generation of Intel chips thinking that the next generation would not be that far delayed. And, and they are. Um, but uh, you're right. These laptops are super expensive. I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, I, I'm kind of like 
getting into the idea of not having a laptop anymore is I don't need one that often. I really like this big screen iMac on my desk and I don't need to spend three grand by the time I'm done to have a Mac when I'm moving around. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. I don't think that, you know, I do think that a lot of the criticism is a little bit heavy. Um, you know, you read, if you read the internet, there's a lot of people saying Apple doesn't believe in the Mac anymore and, you know, they're giving up on it. I don't think you would have made the, um, the touch bar if you were giving up on the Mac. I think there's probably a lot of work that went into that. Um, uh, I, I think that it's a, it's a pretty big profit generator, the, the Mac. So I think they would like to do more. I feel like they're overcommitted and they still haven't figured it out and they're going to need to pretty soon. Um, I got to go spend some time. Do you want me to just go off a little bit on the Apple, on the Microsoft Surface Studio? I don't, I don't know if our listeners even care about that, uh, but I spent a, I spent a half hour with one a few days ago. The, uh, so, you know, Apple, I mean, sorry, I said Apple. Microsoft has an innovative computer, Katie. <laughs> uh, it is interesting to me that both Microsoft and and Google are now making their own hardware aggressively. You know, Google has the Pixel phone. Microsoft is really making com- competitive uh, computers to compete with these vendors that for so many years have been making the only Windows computers. But Microsoft has this new Surface Studio, which is basically an iMac although it's got a little bit of a different proportion to it. It's a 28-inch screen that's got a zero-gravity hinge in it, so it's very easy to just take it and pull it down to like about a 20-degree angle uh, drafting table. So it's it's a computer that you look at. It's got a keyboard and a mouse, and then you can tilt it to a drafting table format. And um, I went, uh, you know, my wife was at the mall, so I said, I'll go with you, and I went to the Microsoft store for a half hour and played with it. It's an interesting computer, and um, it's nice to see Microsoft doing something kind of innovative. the uh, The operating system Windows ten is still Windows, you know, and it's still got a lot of those weird things that Windows does. And it's not entirely touch friendly. You know, you're able to touch it. I tilted it down to drafting level, but like working in a Word document or something, the touch stuff doesn't really work because the targets are too small. You know, you touch it with your finger and you're trying to hit save, and you hit save as or some problem like that you need to use a stylus which which it does have a stylus that magnetically attaches to the side of it stylus wasn't real super build quality wasn't super great um the the biggest complaint i had about it really though was just responsiveness of the whole interface like if you do the pinch to zoom and things like in apps it just kind of like freezes and then a second or two later it shows you wherever it feels like it grew to it doesn't doesn't animate if that makes sense they need to put more horsepower into the graphics chips or the graphics engine behind it all. It feels to me like the whole thing needs a little bit of work, but it's an, a very interesting interface and something I think we'll probably never see on a Mac. So uh, if I was uh, making my living drawing pictures, it might be uh, very compelling, but for what I do, it, it really wasn't. Still more feedback on the new MacBook Pros. Um, Damon's comment was one that kind of hit home for me because it was one that gave me pause. And I think I use my MacBook a lot like Damon does. Damon says, here's how I use my Mac, propped up, plugged into an external display, using an external and keyboard and mouse in my office. Otherwise, I'm typing at my house, but for the most part, I'm using my iPad only at this point when I'm not in my office. During the announcement of the MacBook Pro, with it having only four USB-C ports and zero regular USB ports, and the other biggest feature being something that requires me to use the keyboard at the actual on the actual laptop, the touch strip, I can't help but feel that the new direction of Macs has left me in the cold. 
through monitoring the forms and Twitter, et cetera, there's a lot of people who use their laptops the same way I do. And I love my current workflow, but I don't want to change or carry a bunch of adapters when I'm traveling. Are you hearing the same thing? I'm honestly curious about what your thoughts are. I'm just a little sad. As weird as it sounds, the Dell XPS 13, 15 inch carry the same aesthetic and would require very little adjustments for me to switch to at a lower price. And I, you know, Damon kind of hit it on the head for me, which is why I've kind of been thinking, I'm not canceling my order. Don't, don't get me wrong, but you know, I've been thinking about it. I'm going to be spending, you know, between 3,500 and $4,000 on this new setup by the time I'm done with it. Do, and, and I definitely need a laptop. The The main computer in my life still at this point has to be a laptop. I am not ready to go to the iPad lifestyle. I, I think it may be the last laptop that I buy for a while because I think this laptop may transition to my office at some point and then I may get a, a an iMac. But I am for what I do, I still have to have the portability of a laptop. I still have to be able to take a laptop with me when I go places and I still have to... Um, uh, I still have to have a laptop and I need one that's powerful enough that it can be my main everyday machine. I don't want to buy a 5k iMac and a weak laptop because I think I'd end up spending or a lesser laptop because I think I'd end up spending more money doing that than, and, and still having to juggle two machines. Um, but I, I don't know that I'm going to use a lot of the features on this, this MacBook pro because it's, it's, you know, the touch, I, it's exactly how I use my computer elevated sitting up off to the side on a riser on my desk a lot of the time until I need to grab it and go. Yeah. Well, there, there's a couple points uh, made in this email and I, I don't know. I, I may, I always get accused of being an apologist, I think, but I've, been, I've lived a life where you've tried to use different operating systems and different hardware manufacturers. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I love Apple so much is because generally it all works and it's all made by one person. The um, I, I'm with you. I get it. But like, I, I feel some of this stuff just needs to happen. I, I do think that changing the ports up to USB-C is going to be a pain in the neck for a while. But I think at the end of the day, this is kind of what we want. It, it is a better port. It is faster. It is smaller. And, and it, you know, in a year or two, people are going to be making USB-C, you know, things, projector adapters and all these other things. One of the points we didn't make on that show was you don't necessarily need to be need to be buying dongles a lot of the stuff is already available in cable format you know you may already be able to get a replacement cable for something like if you are at work and they have a projector there's likely a projector cable that ends in USB-C already available so you don't have to bring a dongle in there every time so actually just before you seal the thunder our Phil wrote in and wrote it pretty much exactly that yeah so I mean I, I think there's some changes there uh, the bottom line is I, I've been doing some like screencasting in Windows lately and um, for some other kind of projects I'm working on. I've, I've spent a, a, a decent amount of time with Windows 10. I've got a virtual Windows 10 machine on my iMac here. It is not it is not Mac OS. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what, how else to put it, except it's just not. Not only is the operating system, in my opinion, a little goofy and, you know, this whole idea of adding touch to it was because, uh, you know, Microsoft missed out kind of on the original touch revolution. So they're trying to to make it do both things. It's a toaster fridge and you can make fun of me if you want. But I, I think that it's a very difficult thing to do both of those. And, and Microsoft hasn't got there yet. I know they're trying, but I don't feel like they're there yet. And the other thing is it doesn't have all the great software that we talk about on Mac power users. If you took away from me, you know, just like just 
in this episode alone, the, the, the apps that we've named, if you took those away from me, I would be so slow and so unproductive. So it's really not even a question, but I, well, I, I, I'm certainly not. And I don't know that Damon is, but I'm certainly not switching to a PC. I'm just, I, I think there's a lot of people questioning about whether this is really the computer for them. I mean, I, I could go on with my, my current MacBook air for a couple more years that it would be fine. Or I'm thinking about, well, do I really need the fancy high-end 13-inch touch bar? Should I just get, you know, the lower-end touch bar machine that is really more of a MacBook Air replacement? That, that'd that probably be fine, too. I think, the, I think the underlying angst for a lot of people with this is that Apple just has not done a good job of, you know, watching the shop on the Mac. You know, the as we talked about, the Mac Pro is over a thousand days old. It hasn't been updated. The iMac has been getting annual updates, although now it's behind. The um, you know, they never got a Retina screen in the MacBook Air. Instead, they came out with this ultralight, which is not the answer for a lot of people, or something that has a Retina screen, but it's quite a bit more expensive. Um, and they have not been doing the yearly, you know, speed bump up updates with a lot of their computers, and they need to. And I think there's a lot of justifiable frustration with this stuff. Um, I do think some of these problems will solve their be solved over time. I don't think they're giving up on desktop computers. I think once they, the Intel, you know, roadmap catches up with them, we'll see updates to the desktops. I do think that these lower end MacBook Pro, the the one with the function row keys is going to get cheaper in in the not so distant future. I mean, eventually this will kind of sort out, but I'm I'm not trying to either belittle the complaints because I think they're completely justified and I think Apple has blown it, but I, I don't think that the sky is falling either. Uh, last, last comment on this topic is Chris says the thousand dollar display is ridiculous. He says specifically to me, I think you're crazy to get a thousand dollar display. It was actually a $1,300 display until a few days ago. And now it's just a thousand dollar display again. He says the 24 inch Dell that the wire cutter recommends is great. I love it as a second display and for my MacBook pro and it was $400. I edit video on it. It looks fantastic. Apple's ridiculousness on ports is ridiculous. So this is an email that likes the word ridiculous quite a bit. I was thinking about getting a new MacBook Pro sometime soon, but I think I'll keep my 2012 going for now. And and I'm going to put a link to the display. I, I tell you, David, Apple may have lost out with me. I cannot buy that display. Had that display been available day one, I would not have been thrilled about it, but I would have bitten the bullet. I would have been excited about it and I would have bought it. Now that they're making me wait a month to have to buy it, even though they've reduced the price by $300, they've got me looking at other things like this $400 Dell display. And I think there's a comparable LG one that Casey Liss was talking about in the show that we had him on. They may lose me on the sale, even though they've dropped the, the price by $300 because it it's more than an impulse buy now for me to buy a $1,000 display. And I just want to say, folks, we did not cherry pick these emails. No. The, these are the emails we got on the MacBook Pros. Yeah, this, these are representative. I guess that's what I'll say. We didn't include them all, but these are representative. There, there, was, there was not a single one that said, y'all are crazy. Everything's, you know, great. And those, I mean, we haven't, we haven't excluded that email. I, I have bought Apple display, cinema displays in the past. And the reason I bought them is because they're made by Apple, you know, and it's not for the little shiny logo. It's for the fact that I could take it to the Apple store if something went wrong with it. They used to have a deal when, if you bought the monitor at the same time you bought the MacBook and you got the Apple Care, then you had the three-year warranty on it. So there was, even though it cost a little bit more, I felt like you got additional value for it. And, you know, now they're out of the monitor business. I think this is further evidence that they're in over their head on the Mac and they don't have time to do things. They've, they've just given up on making monitors now. 
you know, they've just let that one fall by the wayside. So hopefully they get better at this stuff. All right, Katie, let's talk about something exciting. What are you happy about spending your money on these days? Um, You know, I have not spent much money recently, honestly. it's We're getting in that lull before the holidays. I'm trying not to buy a whole lot for me personally because we've got holidays going on. I have bought a few things for my business, though, because I've kind of, you know, those are business-related expenses. So I'm not, I'm not sure how exciting they are, but they, they're kind of technology-related, so they make me happy. All right. So, so stop teasing me. Tell me what it is. Um, so one of the things that I've picked up is I, you know, I'm using this uh, Mac mini for at the office. It's one of the the current, not current generation, but one of the current model Mac minis that's, um, doesn't have the, um, the, the, the CD drive. It's a little bit thinner. It kind of looks like a first generation Apple TV. And I don't have a lot of desk. I'm just renting an office space in a, in a bigger complex. So I don't have a ton of space. My space is at a premium. And I wanted a way to hide that Mac mini without having to keep it on my desk and all of those other things that were going on. And I also wanted a nice monitor. And so I also had to pick up a monitor for my desk. And I found a mount on Amazon and it was fairly inexpensive. It's 15 bucks. So this is probably the cheapest pick that you'll get from me. It's called a hide it mount. And it will do a couple of things. One, it's just a mount for the Mac Mini, so you can mount it under your desk or on a wall or in any of those places where you need to just get it out of the way. But the ingenious part about it is the the drill holes for the mount where you would normally mount it under the desk or into the wall or any of those things match up perfectly with, um, is it called VESA or VISA? VISA. Um, I always heard it. VISA. VISA. V-E-S-A. Uh, the, the VISA pattern which is the same pattern that is used to mount monitors to a wall or to a mount monitor arm or those types of things. And um, so, and it's got a couple of different patterns because I think there's like a, a, a 90 by 90 or a hundred by a hundred. There, there are two different VESA patterns or visa patterns and it, it will support both of them. But what this will allow you to do is it will allow you with just a screwdriver to mount your Mac mini to the back of your display. So I've got a, a display at the office and my Mac Mini is literally mounted to the back of it. And so it's kind of like a cheap person's iMac, but, you know, not really. The only the only bad thing is that the way that it mounts the Apple logo is upside down. So I'm going to have to get a sticker or something so that the Apple logo is right side up. Get yourself one of those rainbow stickers. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to have to put a sticker over and then put the rainbow sticker Right side up. But yes, I'm, I'm going to have to get a sticker or something to cover that so that this, the, the Apple is, is right side up. It's kind of like those first world power book problems. But uh, I, hey, it, it solves a problem. It keeps my desk nice and clean and tidy. And uh, I've now got a Mac on the back of my monitor. I am, um, my, the gear I'm playing with this month, I'm really excited. I, I bought this thing. I got an email about it. I was interested in it when it first came out. It was called the Loom Cube, L U M E Cube. And it's at loomcube.com. It's just a light, and but it's a really great light. It's very small, um, and you can put it in your pocket. It's got 1,500 lumens. It has an app with a Bluetooth in it, so it can sync. So it can, like, you can fire off the camera on your iPhone, and it fires off this light as a flash. But it's just a little cube you can stick anywhere. So, like, if you're taking a picture out at night, or if you want to backlight a person, you can just stick it behind them. Or if you want to put to the side of them, the light, like one half of their face. And it's got multiple levels of, um, of brightness. So you can have it super bright or kind of dim. It gives you a lot of uh, flexibility to play with it. Um, I got it on sale. Uh, if you get them on Amazon now, they're about 80 bucks. The um, 
just as I was preparing for the show today, I went to look up the link for it. Now I found out why I got it on sale <laughs> because they have a new product out on Kickstarter called the Life Light, which is about even half the size of the Loom Cube. So it's even smaller and uh, they aren't quite as bright, but they're really great. And you can get that on Kickstarter. I'm going to put links in the show notes right now. But I, I guess to to sell the product, I would say if you like to take pictures with your phone at night and you don't want to have that ridiculous flash, you know, that face on flash, this is what you want. I love it. My 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 mobile gear is is growing. My photo mobile gear. I just have not seen you recently, so but you talk about all the stuff that you stick in your pocket to use for photography. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, you must have some massive cargo pants. No, just my jeans. Uh, the, uh this is a the the Loom Cube can fit in my pocket. You, you got the Loom Loom Cube in your pocket. You've got the um the little EXO. OXO thing in your pocket. The DXO one can fit in my pocket. The tripod is where I run into trouble. Yeah. I got the tripod in your pocket. I mean, you got all this stuff. You just stick in your pocket. No, I just the DXO one loom cube. And then what I do is I, I, uh, if I'm going somewhere, I, I may wear a backpack or something or, or a small bag. Or if, if I, my wife is with me, I'll convince her to put the, the tripod in her purse. So she's nice to me, me that way. But yeah, it really isn't that much gear to take some really awesome pictures. All right. Well, I think that's going to about wrap us up for this edition of MPU Plus. Of course, you know, we did not have any audio comments this this time, David, and that makes me sad. We had um, somebody submit one, but it was uh, quite a bit longer than two minutes. And I just have to caution you, if that happens, I cannot use them. So please keep your audio comments to two minutes or less. Um, but you can send those audio comments to us to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Um, you can record them however you want. We like MP3s, keep the files small, stuff like that. Um, but the voice recorder app on your iPhone works just great. You can record it with a voice recorder, get yourself in a nice quiet place, um, and then email that off right to us. That usually works. So feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Hey, you can also send us feedback on Twitter. Uh, we are at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at uh, Katie Floyd, and I am at MacSparky. Thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Casper, Omni, 1Password, and SaneBox, and we will see you all next time.